Well, good morning. My name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. I'm thankful that we've had the opportunity to worship this morning. And I'm going to ask you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, while you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to re read in verse 16 uh, in a moment. While you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I want to say thank you to all of our volunteers who helped run our, mid our movie night for Potomac Shores Middle School last night. We had a great movie night here for Potomac Shores Middle School. It was a great turnout and uh, it was a great opportunity uh, to serve this school. We're thankful to be able to meet here and I'm grateful for all of you who put in the time and energy last night to serve. And uh, especially thankful for Chapman uh, leading that crew and making sure all the tech went well. It was a stressful startup, but uh, thankful to his leadership in making it go so well. Uh, beginning in verse 16, as we continue our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to read in verse 16 down through chapter 4, verse 3 today. As we think about this topic of injustice and oppression that the author brings up and he says in verse 16 moreover I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness I said in my heart God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beasts, is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. God, as we think of these weighty matters of righteousness and justice, we ask, God, that you would open, an, open our hearts and our eyes to see what you desire for us to understand in your word to glimpse the good promises and hope of the gospel as we consider the reality of sin's corruption, even in our own hearts. So we ask for your help even now, in Jesus' name, amen. The subject of injustice and oppression is never an easy topic to talk about, because as soon as you move from theory to practice, people start to get really uncomfortable. And as this passage really argues, there are plenty of limitations and powers under the sun that would keep us from caring deeply about the oppressed until we find ourselves solidly in that category ourselves. In the summer of 2020, 
as COVID raged on and for reasons that few of us can entirely understand, our country found itself taking, talking extensively about the issue of racial oppression. Given our nation's long history of failure around racial justice and ongoing challenges with shedding a culture of racialization, it's not surprising that there would be deep and complicated wounds that few people would have the ability to navigate carefully and sensitively. And in a moment that needed careful conversation and sensitive leadership, there was little to be found. It's not surprising that there would be deep wounds and difficult conversations. But if you couple that with a season of pain and stress caused by COVID, a series of deaths where the public was pressed to use video and media stories to be the judge and the jury on the spot, and certainly add in powerful pushes by leaders to capitalize on the moments for good and ill, and the result was boiled over tensions that really have only settled rather than resolved. In the middle of all of that, as a pastor, I found myself often despairing on some level. I long for the world to be a just place, filled with righteous judgments, blameless paths. The stories of people who have experienced oppression at times in their life or even in ongoing ways are heartbreaking. Similarly heartbreaking to me was my own ability to discern in all situations what was really just and right and righteous and how I could best honor God. I'm just a pastor of a normal-sized church living in a racially diverse area who deeply believes we were all created in God's image and that to act in a way contrary to that belief is unrighteous and wrong. But in a complex world where time moves quickly, I rarely felt like it was easy to know what was required of me in doing justice and loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you've often reflected on moments like that and wondered as a, as a child of God, as someone who walks with Jesus, what am I to do? When I see moments of justice and oppression or wonder what's going on, how am I to respond? These questions of justice and how to make the world right, they're uncomfortable. And the solutions of lining people up as woke or anti-woke or pro-CRT and anti-CRT seem like ploys of powerful people rather than real solutions to the actual problems in a complex world. We want to be righteous, blameless. We want to see justice flow like a river. And that's just one topic to get us started thinking about the problems of justice and injustice in our world where we wrestle with questions of how we should respond. We can think further about the crises of justice like the plight of the unborn in our world. What are we to do to protect those who will lose their life before they even have a chance to get out of the womb? We can think further about other crises, the reality of human trafficking, or financial systems that often seem to advantage the wealthy, or broken immigration systems. 
in the orphan and foster care crisis. Before long, when we start thinking about these topics of justice, injustice, and our role, our response, it can become overwhelming. And many times we would rather just move on and think about our lives and draw a circle around our experiences and shut out the outside world. But we can't do that. If we just open ourselves up to reality for a moment, we will be ready to take our passage more seriously. And this author wants us to think about questions of justice and righteousness and oppression and see what we're to do and how we can actually think about those challenges in a fallen world. But really what he wants us to do is see the way that sin and the corruption of sin have broken our human experience in ways that we are ready, maybe for the first time, to turn our eyes and hearts up to the King, up to Jesus, and really begin to think about how deeply we need His salvation. So, this passage begins, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The fallen world that we find ourselves in lacks, he says, a real sense of justice. So this morning as we think about this passage, I want us to, to, to before we dive into the actual words, I want us to th understand how we're to read the book of Ecclesiastes and therefore how to think about what he has to say about this topic. Part of the role Ecclesiastes plays in the Bible is to get us to take seriously the reality of the world in its fallen condition. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, there are moments where it just presses us to see uncomfortable topics and come to uncomfortable conclusions that we would rather gloss over and distract ourselves from. But the goal of the book of Ecclesiastes is for us to take seriously the world that we live in in its fallen condition. It's intended to make us really come face to face with the corruption of sin and our human weakness and to really reckon with it. The difficulty for reading and interpreting the book of Ecclesiastes is that we want it to complete the narrative and its explanations in ways that resolve our deep questions even more. And, and it really doesn't, which makes us uncomfortable. But that is the job of the rest of the Bible. The job of the rest of the Bible is to help us resolve what to do with some of the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes presses us to take seriously and to think about. The job of the rest of the Bible is to help us see this and see what God has revealed further to us in the coming of Jesus. So to read Ecclesiastes well, what we do is we take it seriously. We take seriously the reality described here as under the sun, the falling condition of the world. We receive whatever wisdom we can, and then we think carefully about how the cross and resurrection of Jesus gives us further good news than the teacher here could even anticipate himself. But to be able to appreciate that, we have to go with the teacher on a tour around what life can really be like as we wrestle in a fallen world with questions of justice and injustice, righteousness and unrighteousness, oppression, and important things like that. So we're going to take the author's conversation seriously this morning around this topic, and then we'll turn and think about how the coming of Jesus completes what Ecclesiastes could only begin. So in order to follow along with that journey, 
Here's the main idea of where we're going as we think about that this morning. And the main idea of the sermon is that under the sun, which really is shorthand in this passage for in a fallen world, in a world in a fallen condition like ours, under the sun, the lack of justice leads to despair. It leads to despair. And it creates a longing for God's saving intervention. You see, under the sun, the lack of justice, he says, leads us to despair. And in turn, it creates a longing for the coming salvation of God. The writer of Ecclesiastes leads us to this sort of despair, and we're going to walk down that journey a little bit with him, so that then we can in turn appreciate this preparation for the coming of Christ. And he leads us to this despair by framing the conversation in two kind of main ideas that I want us to look at this morning as we look at this passage in Ecclesiastes. And so the first idea we see as we consider justice and oppression is this, that the future judgment of God doesn't heavily advantage us in discerning justice under the sun. The future judgment of God doesn't give us a strong advantage as we try to wrestle out the details of our time and place under the sun. I want you to see how he shows, shows us that. The, the subject is introduced to us with a sort of jarring statement in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16, he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, verse 17, okay, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. This is God's responsibility. God is exalted enough, wise enough to be able to do justice. So it's introduced with this jarring sense where he says that we, where the places where we should see justice most prominently, we often see wickedness. So you might think about that in terms of the place you would expect where justice and righteousness and law and all those sort of things might be protected. We often see corruption. He's talking about government and courts, and, and he's not just talking about the United States. He's talking about a world where those who gain power often use that power to help their own ends, and the result is that often other people find themselves on the oppressed end of that equation. And so where we ought to see justice, so often we see corruption and wickedness. Where we particularly need righteousness there's wickedness. And his, and his argument is if we see it there, where it ought to be protected, how much more would we expect to see it in everyday life? And so he gets us into this conversation that there's often wickedness in these places. So the teacher here explores what comfort we may get from knowing that although that is the case, God is going to bring everything into judgment. So he gives us a truth. The truth is that if he applies from our previous sermon where he says there's a time for everything, that under heaven God is going to do the right thing in bringing justice to bear on the world. That God is a God of order and justice and righteousness. And, and he says, you know, we can take comfort in the fact that there is a time, even a coming time, when God will make right what has been wrong and God will bring justice where there hasn't been justice. And so God will bring everything into judgment. He presents this as initially a positive act, application of last week's text. There's a time of justice that God will perform, and it's a part of God's ultimate and beautiful work. 
We should not lose this anchor of hope or we will find ourselves adrift in the world. But he doesn't leave it there. So often the way that the writer of Ecclesiastes does it, he gives us a truth, but then he presses to ask, what is its value if we're just stuck under the sun, figuring it out on our own? So the teacher quickly begins to press into it. Look Look what he does as we think in verse 17 into 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that themselves are but beasts. Why does he do that? What he says that is is that in his time, in a fallen world, God is allowing mankind to work out just a sort of revelatory test. So as we see a lack of justice, he kind of sets it up this way. We can find some comfort that God's going to bring all things into justice into righteousness in the end. But he's wrestling with the fact that he's just told us that where we ought to see justice, we don't see it. Where we ought to see righteousness, we don't see it. Why is that? We often ask that question. God, why don't you fix the things now? His answer is that actually what God is doing is God has designed the fallen world as a world that reveals our genuine hearts. That this world, in a way, has been given to us to try to work out the big questions of justice and righteousness as a sort of revelatory test, he says. God is testing the hearts of men. And, and you know, that makes you, okay, well, here, I mean, certainly we'll pass the test. It'll be good. You know, we could take our worldview and go, mankind is generally good, right? I'm sure the test is going to go great. And what he says is, no, actually, the test reveals one thing, and he says it pretty bluntly, that we are but beasts. Now, this is where, you know, we, we see the Bible giving us a little bit of medicine that doesn't go down easy. He says that, that this presence of injustice and oppression is the result of God allowing us to see the way in which sin's corruption affects us and makes it nearly impossible even for us to care about doing what is right and good in many situations. That it reveals the reality of sin's corruption. So we may stop and think, great, we're going to pass the test. But before the sentence ends, he says, actually, we don't. We don't pass the test. What the lack of justice reveals in the world is that the effects of sin are so corrupting that, in a sense, they dehumanize us. Injustice and oppression is a dehumanization, not only of those who are victims of it, but it's a dehumanization of ourselves when we engage in it. We were designed to reflect the image of God. To be truly human is to reflect God's righteousness and justice, and there's a dehumanizing, beastly effect that comes with being a people who will tolerate unrighteousness, who will tolerate oppression, and do nothing about it who can't figure out what justice even is in a complex world. It's dehumanizing. It makes us more like the beasts where there's no thought to justice but just power and instinct. Now that's a troubling thought, isn't it? It's sobering for us to have to consider this morning that what sin actually does in our world and in our lives is corrupts and dehumanizes us to be able to do things at times 
that we would never have considered were possible. I mean, I just want you to think for a moment. Just go to that worst one or two moments in your life. The ones you're not proud of. Does this ring true? That the corruption of sin, <laughs> if you looked at it, you, it was more beastly than human? You see, we, we often want to distract ourselves, don't we? And we bring overly opti optimistic views to the world. Naive views, even. Everybody's just out here trying to do good. And on some level, because we're created in God's image, there's a desire for what is good, but the writer of Ecclesiastes says if you take a real close look, there's an uglier picture too. That since corruption has brought us to the place where we more resemble those beasts that run along the lines of power and instinct than we do people who reflect the image of God. So while seeing injustice and unrighteousness, we're to be humbled about human nature. Human nature isn't strong and good. It's subject to the corruption of sin and able to be turned beastly. It's, and this isn't just a problem of some people somewhere. It's a problem of human nature that we're often unwilling to reckon with. Our human nature. Our nature is subject to this sort of corruption and where there should be justice and righteousness in us. We often find something else entirely. I don't know if you're familiar with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, but he was a Russian dissident during the times of communist Russia, and he found himself in the gulag. And from there, he wrote a reflection about the true nature of man and systems of oppression. And he said something just so powerful that I've never forgotten in there. He says, if only it were all so simple, as we think about justice and oppression, he was saying. If only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were, it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, and we could get on with living righteous lives. He goes on to say, but... That's not the case. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Do you get what he was saying there? He's saying the problem of corruption that we often see reflected as injustice in the world as a result of human nature isn't just a problem out there. We find that it's a problem in here. The line between good and evil isn't between a group of people who seem to be good and a group of people who seem to be evil, but something in all of our nature. And when we see evil reflected out there, we're seeing what's possible for us under certain conditions. And he says it's to humble us, the writer of Ecclesiastes. That's the core of his statement in verse 18. This is human nature. In verses 19 and 20, he reminds us, ultimately, along with the animals, we live and do little of real good or lasting value, and we die along with them, and we return to dust. With that intro to being like the beasts, he begins to explore whether we can fix the problem and find satisfaction in pursuing justice. That's what he does in the remainder of chapter 3 here. 
His answer is found by pressing into how much we can really understand about this coming judgment of an afterlife. He says, okay, you know, if we can, if we can know that God is going to judge injustice in a time of judgment, maybe we can just apply that to the present. And we begin to work those things out. His answer, though, is that we really don't understand much at all about what happens when we die. Now, before you do the Bible answer, you say, come on, we know, the Bible tells us a lot of things. And as we read on in the New Testament, there are some things that the Bible gives us a secure promise and hope of. But it's a pretty small list of things, isn't it? And it's a pretty small description. Do you know how spirits work? Do you know how your spirit separates from your body? Whether man's spirit rises upward and an animal's spirit simply falls into the ground. I watched the movie when I was a kid, All Dogs Go to Heaven. And I've probably answered more than 50 times people who have asked me whether the spirit of their pets has risen to heaven to meet them when they get there. I don't know. And neither do you. I don't know how immediate a spirit ascends before the throne. Or questions theologians wrestle with. How does the afterlife work after all? Now, I'm not saying this to discount the clear things that the Bible says that we can count on, but when we start thinking about it, like if you were pressed to be like, I'm an expert on this. I mean, I went to Bible college. I got a degree in biblical studies. I got a master's degree in theology. I mean, certainly I should know a little bit about this, but I'm here to confess to you that we're given very, we have very little insight into the how. None of us are experts. And the writer's point in saying this and bringing us through this little thought exercise is to simply say, if I don't know those basic things, how am I supposed to take God's pure, wise justice that he will use in the end and think I really understand it deep enough to make decisions in the present? It's certainly a comfort to know that God is just and will bring things into judgment but under the sun, we are left with the problems of injustice. And so he says, the best we can probably do is simply try to enjoy our toil while we go, eat and drink. Because we don't know much about what comes after. Well, that's sobering, isn't it? Now, are we to take that as a conclusion? Hey, we just go do that. Well, no, he's working away at us to go, that's a sad situation to be in. And on some level, you know, we might go, okay, well, at least I can stop and do that. I guess I don't need to concern myself with matters of justice because if God's going to judge in the end, I just need to eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But let's think about what he does next. He gives us a little piece there at the end of chapter 3 by saying we have nothing better than to do this and it doesn't sound that bad. Maybe you can eke out a de decent existence enjoying things along the way. But he says, if you begin to think about justice, you're going to also have a problem. It's number two, the lack of comfort for the oppressed undermines our security in finding joy in our toil. The lack of comfort in our world for those who are oppressed undermines our security in finding joy in our toil. He says, at some point, you're going to be faced while you're eating and drinking. We've seen people who have really been mistreated. 
We're seeing some of the evil in the world. That's an even worse scenario to carry. And the text, here's what I think is brilliant about Ecclesiastes. He does this thing where he makes a sort of resolution to a problem. Well, you can't understand how to solve the problems of injustice, so just enjoy some good food and try to find meaningful things to do. And then about the time we feel settled, he sort of tests that further, and he does what we see here. And as we go into 4.1, he continues the conversation by trying to see if that's satisfactory. And the sort of answer is, that all sounds fine and good until you either look at those who are being oppressed or find yourself as one of them. Maybe you'll find yourself the victim of unfair treatment, of injustice. Then what? Is there any comfort? Who will comfort you? Who can, who really rises up to comfort those who are oppressed? He asked that question. He says in a sort of way to us, you can't just find comfort in your toil because you can't look away from injustice as it takes form in oppression. It's a tragedy that those who experience injustice experience on two levels. And I want you to think of what he does for us. He says this, it gets worse when we start to think about it. First, those who experience oppression, they experience the tragic and awful treatment of someone doing what is not just to them, what is not righteous to them. I don't know if you've ever been on the wrong side of someone's unjust treatment. Maybe you've been a part of an organization or you've found yourself on the wrong side of some societal movement or a a whole host of other things on a personal level or at your job or in your life or in your family when you've been the victim of someone else's sinful mistreatment. It's painful, isn't it? It's difficult. To know that you are being mistreated, that it's wrong. I mean, certainly are those times where we feel like we're in conflict, but we're not sure if maybe we're wrong. But I'm talking about those times where it's clear. You're the victim. You've been harmed. The pain and the wounds, they're real. It's difficult, isn't it? But he doesn't just leave it there. He says there's something worse than that. The fact that those who experience that oppression, they're often looking for one thing. (laughs) Does anyone see me? Does anyone else see what I'm going through? Can anyone identify with this experience and comfort me? Is there anyone else who will stand up and say, that's wrong? who'll stand with me and comfort me in the pain of what I've experienced. And and what he says is there's a second level of pain about injustice is that often those who are oppressed find that there's very few people who who are willing to comfort them. This second layer of pain where there's no one to comfort them when you're suffering under oppression, you have this deep longing question, does anyone see what I'm going through? Does anyone understand and care? And the tragedy of injustice in our world is that often the answer is there's no one to comfort, he says. That is the pain, listen, that is the pain people are often crying out from. Does anyone see? 
They can look and see the evil of the oppressors, but they hope to the depth of their souls that there are others who see with the eyes of care and compassion what they've been through and are touched by it and desire to untie themselves together from the system to be able to care for those who are being wronged. And often it's the case, he says, the writer, because the powerful who have the advantage don't want us to care, they can successfully turn our attention to other things, and we are all culpable for failing to comfort the oppressed. There's no one to comfort them, he says, and that's a human tragedy. I'm not talking about any specific situation. I'm talking about written across global history, global present life. There are people who suffer under the unjust treatment of other people, and there are those, there are very few who will be able to comfort them. There are those who will work against them ever receiving any comfort from people who might have a sincere desire to do so. And so on that basis, he says, don't just sit there eating your dessert and enjoying your toil. Join them in comforting them if we want to reflect the image of God. So he says all of these things that just bring us into this uncomfortable reality of injustice in our world. And so on the basis of that, under the sun, he concludes that the effort at justice, uh, our, our pursuit of justice and righteousness as like a, a long-standing thing will turn out to be hevel. Now hevel is the term he's used for vanity, a substance we can sort of get our hands on, but always finds itself slipping through our fingers. And he says until the end, until God brings things into judgment, we will find ourselves dissatisfied in really constructing, building, longing for a world of justice. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't. It just means that we have to come to grips that the corruption of sin in our own human nature leaves us weak. And apart from the divine intervention of God, we will not be people who know how to live a life of justice and furthermore to comfort those who experience oppression. Any And he says, under the sun, that leaves us with a really difficult conclusion. And on the basis of this tragic situation, he says some of the darkest things in the entire book here. If if all we have to go off is what's under the sun. He says, those who have passed on are better off for having made it through. And even better are those who have never yet had to witness this fallen world. I mean, does that seem extreme? I mean, I don't know if it does. What he's saying is to live in a fallen world that's broken, with your eyes open and aware, can be despairingly difficult. The way we deal with it is we find other things to focus on. We're able to look around at our lives and see what things are good, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But he says if we take seriously the brokenness of the world, we will often find ourselves joining him and saying this is a heavy, difficult existence. And this is where we find ourselves if we take the fallen world seriously. If we don't turn our eyes away from injustice, If we hear the cries of the oppressed, if we experience firsthand the injustice and unrighteousness ourselves. But I want to press a layer deeper. 
This darkness is not just a problem in the world, external to us. It's the problem that we share in our human condition with all people. Given the right circumstances and situations, this sort of corruption of sin will manifest itself in us and has corrupted us as well. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When the Apostle Paul seeks to capture this corruption of human nature under sin, he brings together a whole series of quotes from over the, all over the Old Testament, and he says of mankind this in Romans 3, verse 10. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. In Greek, that we see this referenced here, the word righteous and just are the same word. So you kind of use them interchangeably. No one is just. No one is righteously just. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And, and, and you know, think about that. that. He's talking about us. He's saying, apart from the divine intervention of God's grace, this is what the corrupting influence of sin does for all of us and has done to all of us. He goes on in verse 13, their throat, describing humanity, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. He ends it in verse 18 saying there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's our condition. Whatever ways you have escaped experiencing the intensity of that are a gift of God's grace. Are God's common grace being kind to us, despite what the corruption of our nature has produced. And left in this condition, we have no reason to put our hope in mere human solutions. I hope you hear this morning with him that our ability, our solutions are small and weak without the intervention of God. But here's what is interesting. The rest of the Bible reveals that God is not just waiting for the final judgment to intervene. If there's, if, if there's a turn to good news is that in that corruption, God sought us out and he has intervened in our world. Where the writer of Ecclesiastes says, in the end, God will bring things into judgment. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that says, well before the judgment, God, in his great love, entered the world where sin's corruption had overwhelmed us. And he himself, he not only experienced the corruption of the world as a victim, he was oppressed, Isaiah 53 says, under unrighteousness. He lived a righteous, godly life in the person of Jesus Christ. He died a death that we deserve in the place of criminals although he was righteous himself there is no greater injustice that has ever taken taken place on in the history of the planet than that the righteous pure son of God was convicted of a crime he didn't commit and nailed to a cross that he didn't deserve and it makes us ask the question why and the answer is for us and for our salvation 
Because our human ingenuity couldn't solve the problem of injustice. Because our human corruption was, was so weak that what we needed was God's divine intervention to give us new hope, new life, a saving work in us, not just a wisdom work. And so where Ecclesiastes leads us to look wisely at the world, the Lord Jesus Christ enters the world as God's divine intervention in a world of injustice and invites us to be healed and freed forgiven, and saved. And it's a powerful hope he gives. What we see in Jesus at the cross is that there in the same moment of deep injustice, God is present working out his salvation. The hope of the writer of Ecclesiastes was that in the end, God will judge the wicked and the good. The remainder of the Bible says that we find ourselves more often in the corruption of the wicked than we do in the good. And we shouldn't look forward to that day. But we should fear the Lord and hope that he's merciful. And in Christ, we find out what we really needed to know about God if we were going to return to him if we were going to draw near to him we find out that we have a God so merciful that he would enter the world and experience its corruption with us that he could be touched by the injustice of sin and that he was willing to have his body broken and nailed to a cross his blood poured out so that we could be forgiven But not just that we could be forgiven, but that through a spiritual power of a relationship with God, the Spirit of God could enter into us and create something new that isn't present as this writer is getting us to think about injustice. He's saying what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. What does he mean by that? They mean literally that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, we, by faith, are brought in relationship with God through a new covenant whereby his spirit takes up residence with us and he begins to create in us things that aren't currently present in the world. And that thing is the the reflection and image of Christ in us that points to the coming of kingdom where justice reigns, where righteousness rules, where Jesus is Lord and in command, and that, that layered into this place of injustice, God didn't wait to the end because out of his love, he jumps the timeline and he comes into the present and he intervenes for us and he draws us into a kingdom that, that brings us out of darkness into his marvelous light and creates us to be the kind of people who are willing to live in a world broken-hearted over injustice, but so fully hopeful of what is to come that we can be a people of light with hope and joy, and, and we can give ourselves to righteousness and justice, and we can follow the shepherd, and even if it looks like it's failing and worthless, it's not. It's the reverse of Hevel. It's something that doesn't look like it matters right now as we live lives of justice and righteousness because we, can't, we don't feel like we can change the world. And it looks like a vapor and becomes a substance. 
So that in the end, as Jesus calls us out of the grave one day, all of our works of righteousness and justice come up with us. And they're a part of his beautiful kingdom that began when he rose from the dead. The king of righteousness and justice is working out his kingdom and he's invited you and me to join him in living rooted in that promised hope of the future rather than the fallen one that this writer tells us about under the sun. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've never wondered what it means to be a Christian. It means to leave that story of darkness to acknowledge our own corruption and say, God, I need you and your spirit to do something new in me. I can't just wisdom my way out of this. I want your saving work to give me a new heart, to create me new, so that I can put my hope in you to walk in obedience and righteousness and await your coming kingdom. God's plan is to save us through Christ. And because of that, we can comfort the weeping with genuine hope. You can go to those who are oppressed and you can assure them that God loves them and knows them and sees them and you do and that he's given the promise to make all things new in Christ. That he's not just saving souls, he will save the whole cosmos in the world and make it new for us to dwell in. And they can find hope. They can find joy in a world that they can't fix. And hope in Jesus Christ. We can comfort the weeping with genuine hope. Because of this, we can follow the Good Shepherd into righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. We may not know all the answers to remaking the world, but we can walk with Jesus and we can trust Him. We don't have to be subject to the, to the flow, ebbs and flows of culture and all the pressures. We can walk with the Good Shepherd and do what is righteous and good and know that He will lead us as His Spirit gives life to the things that really matter. And that's the kind of community that we have to be. We, we can't get caught up, listen, we can't get caught up in political movements that have an end other than honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to exist in a world where we make decisions, we should do what is right and good, but we are people of a coming kingdom. We're about to go through a season where our nation will lose its mind. And I don't want our church to lose its mind. The best testimony we can give is that we belong to something else so deeply that we are not desperate to force anything else, but we can trust what God is doing. That we need way more than political solutions. Those things are good. They can be good, but they can also distract us, guys. They can distract us from the hope of an eternal kingdom and what really matters. And they can divide people who love one another sitting in these seats right now. What I don't want to see is that kind of division that divides these people who I love, who find union in the baptism that we share in Christ. Because we think we know the right way to fix things in the present. I don't want to go through another season watching that. People out there may lose their minds about this. Other Christians may. They may come with pressures. 
But we belong to a coming kingdom of righteousness and justice that Jesus is building. I hope you'll join me in pursuing it. Because we can be confident in the future victory of God over every earthly power. And in humbling ourselves, he'll make us a people of justice, of righteousness, of goodness and truth and beauty. And we can count on that. Because his spirit that is in us is more powerful than anything else in the world. And I hope you long for that. Pursue it. Rejoice in it. And rest in it today. If you don't, I beg you to think about whether you can overcome what this writer has shown us. Or whether today you need to flee to Jesus Christ as your hope and your salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It is so rich and good. I pray, God, that you would use it in our hearts and lives to shape us into a people who truly pursue what is good and righteous. So, God, we submit ourselves to you. We confess that, God, the corruption of sin has touched our lives and we often are drawn by desires and hopes and promises that will harm us, that won't honor you. And, Lord, we need your renewing work by your word and your spirit and your church day by day to make us new. God, we look to that hope and that hope alone in Jesus Christ. Amen.